If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. On this week's episode of Damsels in the DMs. So between uh, these ridiculous cuts in pay, the uh, and again, let's be clear, the heads of these studios, these the people who are all part of the other side of this, they're making money that is that doesn't even make sense it's so much money so why can't writers the fact the folks who are in fact putting st- content out there can't why can't we share in this much of that pot this message is intended as a reminder that we are not licensed professionals not psychiatrists or psychologists if you have a serious problem please seek professional help the national suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255 that's 1-800-273-8255 there's some damsels in the dm yes queen <laughs> tell us what's the vibe there's some damsels in the DM. Yeah. Please tell us what's the vibe. DMs, DMs, yeah, we see them, yeah, we read them. DMs, DMs, we don't need them, we just leave them. Please. Yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. I'm Lauren. I am Osh. Osh, my girl, how you doing? So swell, so great, living the high life. In not so fabulous news, you guys may have been following, there's a writer's strike happening. And all of Hollywood is kind of um, in a weird position right now. I mean, so the writers are on strike. Osh, you've been like passing by the protests, correct? Yeah, so I feel like my everyday commute is past Paramount Studios. And um, it's really cool to see all the picketers out there and I mean, I need to get out there and support. I just, for my support, I just honk my horn a little bit because that's what you do. In her Jeep. <laughs> that, her Jeep that, like, that Instagram story made me howl when you were like, support them, pay them what they deserve. And I'm like, are you in your Jeep? Just taking a picture. You're coming out of the Equinox in your Jeep across from Sony Pictures. Anyway, everybody, back to the strike that we were talking about with Asha's Jeep. Today, we have such a great guest on. I mean, this person really makes me believe in having a career in the entertainment industry. And I I really don't say that lightly because I feel like this career is so hard and having people who make it a little bit easier and a little bit more enjoyable and provide you words of wisdom and just the, the ability to believe in somebody, I feel like really goes so far in an industry where there's no playbook and there's no understanding of everything that you need to do to get by. Just to have that little bit of people who make you want to pursue this career, I feel like says so much. And I'm just so glad that in this episode, you guys get to experience the joy of this person that I have. So today we are talking to Nat Bernstein, who is a writer, producer, and showrunner. And we're going to learn a lot more about the writer's strike, which you may have seen in the news for our friends who are not affiliated with the entertainment industry. Nat's going to go through the ins and outs of what's going on and what actors, writers, producers can be doing during this time period. Yeah, and it was also great to hear more about the the um, protests and what's happening and the strike because as an actor, I'm not fully aware of what's happening in other people's and other 
um, facets of the industry. And it was really cool to hear about what's going on and talk about his experience 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting, especially because Ash, you mentioned like as actors, we don't always know what's going on with the writers, but it really is such a domino effect and all of the unions get affected once it affects one union. Cause you know, after the WGA, then it's SAG, then it's the DGA. So I think this episode is super important for those who are pursuing a career in the entertainment industry. Yeah. Thousand percent. And if you are a listener who is in higher power in the industry, I think, um, you know, this is a great way for you to kind of hear what's happening on the other side. Yeah. So let's get into it. Let's do it. I did Nat's one-on-one workshop and he was phenomenal. And then I said, hey, we're both from Pennsylvania. Um, We need to get coffee and you need to help mentor me because I can tell that we would have um, some great rapport. So that's why he's here. And Nat, I want you to walk our listeners through everything that got you to where you are today and, you know, starting in Pennsylvania and everything else. It, I, it's a long story that I will desperately make shorter because <laughs> although I will always fill people in on a longer version at some other point if people are really truly intrigued and interested. Um, I look, I got started, um, I was in college. I went to Penn State University. And at that time I was majoring in psychology. I, I didn't think about um, this business at all other than as every young teenager and preteen thinks about watching TV and going, Boy, I would love to be in that television show, or I'd love to be in that television show. And as a kid in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, it just didn't seem realistic. So I didn't really do anything about it. But I had been an athlete in high school. And I'll talk about why that's important in a second, for me at least. And that led, and I was, uh, I ran day camps back in my hometown, loved working with kids, loved it. Even when I was, you know, 16, 17 years old myself. Uh, I just love the idea of just doing that. And I thought, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to parlay my, because I had a psychology teacher who was also a guidance counselor and a football coach and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be that so I can utilize all the things that I love, sports and so forth and so on. But before I settled into my life in Harrisburg, I was going to go my senior year at Penn State out to California because my plan, I, by the way, I had never been on an airplane until I was 22 years, until I flew out here about that. Not only that, but I'd never been further west than Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was truly an East Coast kid. That's where I thought I'd live and die, and I would be just fine and happy. But I came out to California with the intent of spending some time just to see what it was like, failing and then going home. But that would have been okay, because I just thought that's what I want to try. I want to have an adventure before I settle into my life. Well, dissolved to bazillion years later, here I am. Why? I, because of all the things that happened to get me here. I survived for a year, overwhelmed as so many of us are when we come out to California by what, which way do we turn? Because there's so much, there's so many avenues. I ended up getting a job as a production assistant, as a runner, a gopher at Paramount Studios through a, a friend's fraternity brother. I won't go into that whole story. But that got me into the business and I was loving it. And I was essentially, even though I was working ridiculous hours, and making nothing. It was, as it turns out, like going to grad school and getting paid $150 a week because I was with these amazing writers, amazing producers, amazing actors. So at the time, my goal was to act. So in my third job, because I would, you would go from job to job as we do in so many different things, I asked the producers who asked me to come back and work on the show, a show called Taxi, which some of you know and some of you don't, was one of the great sitcoms uh, truly an American in comedy history out here. Well, across the country, obviously. And I said, would you help me get my SAC card? And they did. I, they stuck me in an episode of the show and I got my first acting role. And that led to acting. I was starting to act. I started to get roles. I was in acting classes, loved them, really loved what I was doing. And after about a couple of years of building a resume, I had a friend in an improv class say, would you like to write something together? And he was a buddy. So I thought, oh, okay, yeah, let's try to write something. And so we based a a script, a movie on, um, I had a job as a house sitter. And we sort of parlayed this really interesting idea into a a whole story. Funny enough, it's right there on my, I'm pointing to it. It's called Opportunity Knox. That movie got made through Imagine Films with two producers who were babies at the time too, one of whom was my friend, Mark Gordon, who was going on to do amazing work. 
Saving Private Ryan, Speed, Grey's Anatomy, Mark's done everything. And his partner at the time was Chris Maladondri. Chris has gone on to do so much stuff in the animated movie world. But these were our buddies and they got us, frankly, into the business. Movie got made. Wasn't the movie that we wrote necessarily, but it got made. And suddenly I went from being a struggling actor to an overnight success as a writer. And that's crazy. It just doesn't happen that way. And then the first writer's strike happened way back in like, I think it was 2007 or 2008. I, my former partner now, because we, after 30 years, we finally said enough, enough is enough. Um, we wrote a spec uh, television half hour. And that got us into the world of television. And we worked on Doogie Howser. And the, by the way, all this stuff is, it's embarrassing to have to essentially spew all of your credits. Mm -hmm. So it's easier for anybody who is watching, you, you can look me up. You can Google me because that's where, or IMDB me. And you can see my credits. That way I don't have to go through all of them. But ultimately it led from one job to another job. Doogie Howser. I went, we went from job to job to job, moved, um, we moved up the ladder to where we were finally co-executive producers. And once you are at that level, when the show ends, you're kind of ready to go out there and create your own stuff. Not everybody can do that. Um, and frankly, it's hard. Uh, and you can't get, you don't go to school for it. You just have to kind of learn it on the fly. And that's what happened. We started creating our own stuff and we became showrunners. What a showrunner is, is essentially the boss in TV of whatever series you're doing, whether that be a half hour or a drama or whatever. Um, and we then started to create television series. And we did, we've had a, a, a lot of successes. We've had, certainly have had our share of failures as well, but that's how we got in. And 30 something years later, uh, being showrunners, um, I started, I finally left my partnership because I just, we were really dysfunctional. We just were, we were dear friends. We still are dear friends, but as writing partners, I would strongly recommend that you really have a better functioning relationship with your partner. Um, we didn't, but like I said, we were able to transcend it through luck, talent, whatever. And we were creating, but ultimately I said, I kind of, I'm done. And whatever else I do after this will be what I want to do in my life. And I started teaching more and more, which is funny enough, a full circle because mm. that's what I thought I was going to do in the first place. So that's kind of, that was I clear in my kind of my wild and crazy path to that get here. <laughs> it's been a ride and I have been ridiculously fortunate and and our legacy and my legacy as a writer, producer, showrunner, I'm really proud of it. And I'm, by the way, I'm still doing it. I, I actually have a couple projects still um, and so we'll see what happens with them. Amazing. Okay. So you briefly mentioned, and I'm going straight into it, but you briefly mentioned the strike of 2008. Yeah. How did you get through that, the writer's strike? Um, how long did it take? Do you remember um, any details from that last strike? I, a ton. And I'll tell you why. That strike, we were babies. We really didn't know anything about anything other than, oh, well, when we essentially, what they call, put your pens down, don't do any more work, we were able on our own every day, every morning, whenever we wrote, to write a spec. That's when we wrote that spec. Mm -hmm. Now, we knew we couldn't do anything with it until the strike was over, but we took advantage of the time. Um, and by the way, I say to writers to this day, that's what you have to do while you're picketing and while you're waiting and while we fight this good fight now, but that's what we did then. And it was, and I've been through three, I've been through that one. And then there was one, oh my goodness. It's just, they all sort of, oh, you know what? No, the first one was like 1980, 1988 or 87. Second one was like 2007 or 2008, which by the way, I posted a picture on my Instagram because uh, my mom, was here at the time. And so she struck with us. So there's a picture of my mom and me and some other friends in this gigantic um, crowd of writers in Hollywood. It was one of those big events. Um, so it's, you know, it's been documented. Look, they're always hard for writers who are younger, who are getting their start. It's harrowing. It's, it's really um, stressful. 
But as I said in one of my early posts on my social based on this is that we strike for the writers that are coming, the generations that are going to be following us, just like those older writers did for us when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Because, and again, some of it I get and some of it I don't, but the the total lack of fairness has really just seeped into this crazy world of television and frankly movies and it's really uh it's it's um it's got to be fixed and i'm not sure how it's going to get fixed to be honest with you but it it needs to be so this time you talked a little bit about the one that you were working on in 2008 and you also talked about how you had projects that were coming up right before the strike happened how do your projects that you were working on get affected when the wga goes into strike some of them get some of them go away because depending upon how far along in the process you've gotten with certain things, if it's been bought and you were in the midst of uh, meetings and they were going to be picking up the series come the fall, some things go away. And some things go away because that's part of the ugliness of this, of what happens. There, you know, there will be the, and again, I, I, I'm not even sure, isn't it funny? I look at it, this, I, I, as I told you both, I have this like next to me, the proposals from the WGA and the response from the AMPTP, which by the way, it's like the American Motion Picture. I don't know what it actually stands for, but it's the, it's the companies. Um, and some of them just basically go, you know what? You either come in and do your job or we're going to what's called force majeure some things, which means it's just going to go away. It's going to go away. So that's, another level of stress with some projects. I'm going through it sort of on a project where I'm executive producing and I supervise the writing on a wonderful script for a company that I'm not, I won't talk about the company specifically, but I will say that they, or their meetings with us prior to the strike, love this script and want to do it. But I can't tell you what's going to happen now because nothing can happen um, until this gets settled. I mean, I suppose they can say to anybody who's not in the union, we're going to go forward, we're going to cast this because the script is already there, but we can't work on it. And frankly, our writers who are exquisitely talented writers are non-union, but want to get into the union. And so they have to be, they they have their call always, but they have to be really careful to not Get involved with that kind of stuff. So it gets tricky. You either have people who are understanding, who go, look, when it's done, we'll we'll figure this all out. And then there are others who are going to go, it's gone away. Your fault. Your call. So that just adds to this crazy layer of conflict. Yeah, it's been interesting because some of my classmates in class have been asking the professors like, well, now there's all these open writing jobs. Like, should we go out and try to get these writing jobs? And all of the professors are like, absolutely not, because you don't want to damage any future relationship you have that you could potentially have with the WGA. And then, you know, my other question for you is typically the other unions follow suit, right? Like SAG and the DGA right after um, the WGA goes on strike. It has not until this year have all of the contracts sort of come due at the same time. So SAG has been awesome. SAG, uh, there are a lot of actors who have joined us in the picket lines because um, I think their contract and look at what SAG, I mean, again, the between the health plan and all this stuff that is just not it's not right. It's not. And so our actors are going to be striking with us. The DGA has always been trickier because oftentimes they don't see things the same way that the writers do. Hopefully in this case, the more people who go out and the more things that are shut down, the better the chances of having a, um, a, a some sort of resolve quicker. Um, but you said the right thing. You're, the professors are telling students the right thing. I had this conversation yesterday, believe it or not, with two wonderfully talented creative creators, young, who said, is this the time for us to get our projects out there? And I said, I got to tell you my opinion, because I'll never say to anybody, no, I won't be that adamant. But I will say, you have to think long term. You cannot think short term. Because if you think, and you're not wrong, that this is the time that people are going to be looking for stuff. 
you will shoot yourself in the foot ultimately because the union will know and the union will know um that essentially you've you know you've crossed the picket line to do this and it's not a good play for some young writers who are who think they can take kind of advantage of this this time period for our listeners who aren't in the industry and have no idea what's going on, can you take us back? <laughs> First of all, we apologize. <laughs> can you take us back and just tell us a little bit about what's happening with the strike, what your thoughts are, and what changes writers and you are wanting to see, and just you know everyone else who's in the industry who is supporting writers want to see from this strike? Sure. I, I'm going to, as opposed to, to referencing these silly numbers and these silly percentages i'll cut to the chase as i see it and i'll give you a little bit of a backstory um when i was a baby writer um and then when we became successful years and years ago truly writers were being i hate to say this really overpaid so many of all of us were being overpaid why because studios were just throwing money at writers off of successful television series as if that's what makes you you successful that you worked on a staff of a show again not to be mentioned because i don't i don't need to throw people under the bus i just went through it and saw it um so the, and i would say to my partner at the time we're 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 kind of when the, we're on the wave of getting wonderfully paid but man, oh man, they are overpaying people to not be able to create. And that's ridiculous. Well, cut two years later, and not even today, everything started to change. It's as if they went, yeah, we've been overpaying you guys for so long. We're not going to pay anything now. And what's happened, and I've seen it because in the last show that I did, um, our budget writing-wise was cut to silly proportions what's happening now is that they are not only underpaying writers across the board scripts residuals uh, with streaming i don't I, nobody gets it nobody understands exactly what streaming does do with residuals and again what residuals are those of folks who are, really aren't aware of all the terms that's when you're a show that you've written, an episode of a half hour television or an hour television is written when it starts to replay on television. You know, when they go into reruns, that's a form of income for so many writers. And frankly, that was the form of income that so many of us needed to survive. When your script repeats a number of times, you keep getting paid. Now, a lot of people will say, somebody else compared this to me, they said, uh, when you fix a toilet as a plumber, you don't get paid every time somebody flushes the toilet. Well, not the same thing. Interesting, mm. interesting analogy. I will say that, but it's not the same thing. So they were, they were, they basically have said, not only are we not going to pay you residuals for so many things, your budget's going to be, your own budget's going to be cut. Your writing staff are going to be making this much when they used to be making this much, and. As you guys know, if you don't, and you do, because you know, as actors, you've seen it. If you are lucky enough to get on a television series, you may do eight episodes and then not do anything for a year because it takes that long for the next season in streaming to come to work its way through. And writers, in some cases, are told, can't, you can't do another show. You have to wait. Um, you can't survive on that. You just can't. Mm -hmm. So between uh, these ridiculous cuts in pay, the uh, and again, let's be clear, the heads of these studios, these the people who are all part of the other side of this, they're making money that is that doesn't even make sense. It's so much money. So why can't writers, the fact the folks who are in fact putting content out there, can't why can't we share in this much of that pot? But that's not what's happening. And so again, you talk to somebody on the other side and they'll give you a whole other story. But the bottom line is that it's pretty clear. Right. And again, I'll put my glasses on because there may be some things that are really interesting to see in this thing. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there's everything here from, and I will give you a, just a sense of it. Um, the WGA proposed, there must be at least 10 things here. And on half of them, the response is rejected our proposal, refused to make a counter, meaning there's no negotiation. Mm -hmm. So, that's just not 
that's not doing good business. And they think they can get away with it, and they can for a while because there is a lot of content that's already out there. You will feel that for a while. But ultimately, that's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for writers to essentially crumble and go, we got to go back to work. We can't we can't stay out of work for six months or we'll lose our homes. We'll lose our, it will lose too much. Yeah. Right? I think the hard part about the entertainment industry is that it's centered around people's dreams. So then there becomes a scarcity mindset about it because people are like, oh, um, since there's this strike, now is my opportunity to seize it and take these jobs because if I don't have it now, like when am I ever going to have it? Because people think that they're following their dreams. It's not like a career in finance where you did it just to put um, bread on the table. People have tied so much of their identity to this career path. So if they're waiting out six months, they feel like they're, losing on their dream, you know, and I see it with all of the actors who write into us on the podcast, because they're like, what should I be doing right now? Like during this time, if there's no opportunities, like, how am I supposed to change my representation? Like you were talking about in the beginning. So what do you think are productive things people can be doing during this time period? Well, actors should always be studying, taking their classes when they can. And I, yes, I know. I preface everything with I know everything costs money to to the the price of doing business as both an actor and a writer. It, it has to be taken into consideration. I get that. But as an actor, keep working on your craft because Lauren, you know this, and Ash, although I cannot wait to watch see your reel. The fact of the matter is you can do a ton when you're not essentially auditioning and by the way there's still going to be auditioning out there there are still some series that are going to go you have to decide for yourself whether or not you're willing to 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 read and by the way why not it's always good even if you pass on it at least you've continued to work on your craft as an actor that's what you have to do or and lauren you are your own force of nature which mm -hmm. is uh, you're a creator you've created stuff uh, um uh and and Ash, I'm so sorry, you probably have just as well, but that's what you have to do. You have to continue to do what you can do so that when it's over, you're ready. Um, these two young writers who I talked to yesterday, I said they have a ton of ideas. They're putting one pages together. One pages are essentially, here's what our series would be. Here's our half hour series. Uh, this is the, and they, it's a log line. You essentially put a log line together that describes what you have. You can put decks together. What a deck is, it's a visual representation of your series idea. Decks have become incredibly popular for a good reason. They're an easy thing to look at shortcut-wise for a potential buyer. And a potential buyer can go, oh, I, I see the series. Oh, and they've even put in possible, you know, you always go with your prototypes for actors so that they can go, oh, now we see what these creators are seeing. You can do that. You can do a lot of things, and yes, none of them, frankly, pay yet, but you will be ready. And I can really tell you as, uh, as actors, because I've been there, and I know, and I saw this when I, I taught an acting class years ago, actors want shortcuts in a lot of cases. In other words, I don't really want to study. I'll just take my chances. I'll go out there and audition, and I'll see what happens. Sometimes that works about this much of the time. Most of the time, what happens is that you're not prepared. And if you're not prepared and you haven't worked on your craft, there are a lot of actors who have. And so what happens is you kind of go down to the end of the line again. Because if I look at somebody's tape or if I watch somebody in a room and I go, they're just not prepared. They're not ready. They don't get a second chance. You have to be memorable. You don't have to get a job all the time because we know that's not realistic. But if you're memorable, if you were somebody who I go, oh, my God, I love their work. They're not right for this. But so that's what you got to do as an actor. You have to keep working. You got to make a living, whatever that is. But then again, as actors, we have to do something usually outside of the acting business to continue to to bring in money so that we can live, you know. Yeah. I'm reading Sicker in the Head by Judd Apatow right now. And um, he was saying how Kevin Hart, when he would go into the rooms to audition, he just wanted to make them laugh. He didn't care if he got the job. He was like, as long as I made them laugh, that's good. That's all I wanted. I don't care if I book it or not. 
And he's become a pretty damn good actor. I don't even yeah. like when he was first out there because he was a stand-up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And by the way, unique. This this, you know, not a big man, but funny <laughs> as hell. And so when people started meeting him, that was like, oh man, how about if we do this? We'll put him with a guy like uh The Rock. And just <laughs> look at the visit. That's what that's how that worked. And yeah, hey, to his credit, he was able to transcend. Um, not being an actor, which I'm sure that's probably something he wasn't at the very, very beginning of his career, but he was always funny and funny sometimes works. Another gets... Pennsylvania native, Kevin Hart. Yeah. Oh my God. There's a lot of us, isn't there? There's yeah. a lot. <laughs> I want to go back to what you were talking about um, with actors who may be getting auditions during this time. Can you explain like how there are still shows going on? Because I think that there's a lot of confusion around that. So the shows that are still going on, like did those writers decide not to strike? Are those non-union writers? Can you just clarify that for people who may still be getting auditions? This, this may not be a totally accurate uh, assessment because I don't really know who is mm-hmm. shooting, but I did hear again um this week that's something on disney is still shooting don't know what it is you can the writers in the most in most cases are not going in um i think every writer is going no i'm not going to work showrunners are being pushed into working because they'll say well okay you're not going to write but you still have to do your producing duties all right you have to decide whether you're going to do that but for actors um and again it's your call if there is a series or half hour, whatever, that has the scripts already written and there's not going to be any rewrites on it, well, the crews can still go in and they can still shoot the script as is. Now, again, I don't know what's happening behind the scenes. I don't know how much of it's being changed. I do know that what's happening with the the, the guild, the writer's guild, is that they will find out they're calling it something i can't think of the name of it i just read this the other day they will go to that studio and if there are at least two people picketing you are crossing the picket line which puts a little bit of added pressure on those actors who are going in who really probably sincerely were thinking well i'm going in because it's my you know i'm i'm a regular in this there's no rewriting i'm doing they're shooting they're shooting the scene the the series so I don't know what the actual rule is right. specifically. I know actors are ask, asking because I would as well. There are still writers who ask questions and I do too, which is what is doable? Mm-hmm. What is still possible where you're not breaking the the rule, but, and, you know, but you are still pursuing it in some ways, as long as you're not going in and doing any writing work. Does that kind of answer that question? Yeah, yeah 100%. That's a great question. Do you prefer at this point in your career being in a writer's room or show running? Well, they're kind of the same thing, believe it or not, because when you're a showrunner, you have your writer's room. You've created that writer's room. And by the way, that's one of the things, another one of the things that the WGA said no more of, which is we have a series idea. The buyer potentially says, we love it. Put together a mini room. Give us, come back and give us some, uh, here, what, what, how to break down seri- the idea of what the series is going to be. Give us a Bible, blah, blah, blah. That's what they were doing pre-strike and not paying anybody because they wanted as much as they could. Now, that's not fair. That's ridiculous. But for those of us who are in, who are running shows, that's what we do. Um, there are very few showrunners who do it on their own. Very few, if any. I do know that David Kelly, who was one of my bosses once and who's still a friend who I love, is able to, because he's just so prolific, he can write without having a big writer's room, if he even has one. I don't know. As a matter of fact, I'm sure he still does because he's doing a lot of different things. Um, And he's brilliant. He's brilliant. And he is someone who doesn't need as big a writer's room as we did. (laughs) Because you need to have writers who are not only coming up with new ideas, but who are writing the script that's currently uh, being shot. Again, this is all no strike. So it's kind of the same thing. I love being in a room because, and I exaggerate this, but misery loves company. It's a hard job. It's difficult. Um, and I, and there are stories I can tell you about writer's rooms that are both 
horror shows and there are others that are just thank god there is a writer's room thank god there are other writers in a room together and we create and you have to remember the great thing about it is that you sit in a room with let's say you're lucky enough to have a staff of eight nine people and you forget that the work you're doing is going to get seen by millions of people out there in the world you forget that sometimes because you're sitting in this little enclosed enclave of writers creating so i kind of like the idea of having a writer's room yeah i do and that's what a showrunner needs and has in most cases so i don't know if you've been paying attention to any of like the technology stuff that's happening right now that's blowing up with ai going off script i actually visited my brother in seattle this weekend and he is just he works in tech so he just is super obsessed with that and i'm not i wish we could go back to the 1950s where we still are on like horse and carriage and like donkey carts right because he was like oh you know like models are going to be gone like they're replacing models and actors and writers and this like your industry is going to be gone i was like can we can you just shut up (laughs) like can we not talk about this that's not good to hear (laughs) i don't want to listen to this i if if it doesn't sound good to my ears like music to my ears i don't want to hear it um but i think we should actually talk about it because and, you know, in the future, I don't know how many years in the future when this is going to be possible, AI is going to take over writing. Like it already is taking over so many other aspects of creative writing, copywriting, all of that stuff. So do you think, is there anything that we could be doing or writers could be doing to prepare for this major change that could happen in the future? If these big studio heads are already trying to cut costs, they're probably already looking at where the future of technology is going. Do you think it's ever going to be the case where writers will be replaced by technology? Or do you think that is just like physically impossible for that to happen? Unfortunately, I don't I don't think it is physically impossible. I think it's actually a real scary possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, it just is. Chat G- GPT um, is pretty wildly, crazily, weirdly awesome for other things. It just is. Um one of my writer friends, he said, I'm going to do a ja- chat GPT to essentially write my retirement speech. <laughs> we were laughing about it all. And it did a nice job. Look, it's still kind of generic. It still kind of is. Um, I don't think actors, thankfully, will ever be. Re- well, that's me. You never know. With the, you know. They do a lot of that motion capture and suddenly you're. You're, you know, you're, you're that you may lose, but with writers, there's no question. I think that, and it is in this negotiation because it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked to a friend over dinner a couple nights ago. Isn't it funny that all these things are very much in the zeitgeist. So we are talking about them. Um, and she works for a company that is absolutely embracing, not as a, not writing per se, like scripts in the entertainment business, but other things Things that, as she was saying, uh, I have to write a number of what was she called? Not questionnaires, but interviews. She, and she had, she had, she can't do it without the, you know the help of you know here. And this is the specifics for this. Please put something on paper so that I can. I don't have to waste my forty-five minutes to an hour coming up with it for X number of possible interviewees. Um, but for writing for writing staffs, there's no question that they're going to try. They're going to try out. Here's a funny story. This is how it really kind of was many, many years ago, something that um, we laughed at. Um, when we were writing on Doogie Hauser, our staff was convinced we were out of ideas. We can't come up with any more, does We're done. We're just. And so we found out that the writer's store, there was a place called the writer's store, a couple of them across L.A., had what was sort of like a pinwheel of ideas and characters and you would you could spin it and you could kind of come up with maybe a story so we thought laughingly let's just go this is truly 35 years ago no kidding yeah at least that just dates me but then again i'm not gonna fool anybody with this face (laughs) so uh, we went there and of course it doesn't work it didn't work then but that was sort of a precursor to now which is now it's, yeah, there is so much information that allows for these these uh, artificial intelligence, you know, uh, creations to come up with a script. You put in all these things. And so 
you got to take it seriously as a writer. And it is scary. And you can bet that whatever these companies can do to not spend money and get product that they will convince themselves is similar enough in quality, they'll do it. And that's a problem. I had a classmate who used ChatGBT to write their paper and I got a B on the paper and they got an A. You are kidding. What? No, I'm serious. It hurts, but it's the truth. (laughs) Did the professor know that that was not written by that student? Oh, you're kidding. How did you find out? Did they... Did they talk about it? Did they, did they actually? My friend told me. That's the only way I know. Nobody else knows. And except all of our listeners now. Lucid <laughs> <laughs> interview. What's their name? <laughs> that, is, that is unbelievable. Um, yet there's, that's the fear right there. It's the, and by the way, how hard was it for you to remain silent? Um, Pretty easy because I like this friend a lot (laughs) and I would feel really horrible. Um, But my guilt complex would be too strong, but um, it definitely made me feel like an idiot for sure. What? But it was like, was it a five page paper? Was it a 10 page paper? You are kidding me. Yeah. And we just had another one that was like 12 pages and I'm sure people used it for that too. So I'll, I'll keep you. Well, actually, so that was the fear of most colleges. I'm so surprised that Columbia is not checking into this because I'm sure they will soon. Yeah. There's, there's a bot where professors can check if the students have used chat GPT to write this essay. So I'm surprised that. But the problem is like, if you go back and you make edits to it, then it's hard for the bot to catch it because like you can use ChatGPT sort of like as a template, then edit everything that it said. And then the bot can't catch it in the same way because a human has gone in. And that's what I think is going to be the future Mm -hmm. of writing for TV. I think that there's going to be a lot of editing. That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. And it's actually kind of interesting that your friend Ethan told you that they were doing this because it, they know that they're putting you in a very odd position, which is, I'm going to tell you something, please don't say anything, but because it will affect, it will affect high schoolers trying to get into colleges. It will, right. uh, is that paper being written? And you're right. If you can edit something and kind of hide the fact that it's been written already by someone else, by something else, um, that's that's fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, it's scary. Uh, wow, and sad for me who spent hours <laughs> writing it. It's just really it kind of your friend and whoever else is doing this. Like they're spending so much money to go to school at this prestigious university to study something that they're passionate about, and then they're using Chat GPT to write essays for homework or well my boyfriend wanted me to use it to write my feature script because we had to write a feature script for school and he was like oh why are you so stressed just plug in your idea to chat gpt i was like i have to write my feature script it's my story i can't use a bot to write my feature that defeats the whole purpose you know what would be an interesting study though in that which is give it a scene to write see how close it would actually be to your voice. And I would guess that it's halfway at least to the way you might say something. That alone, and again, that's the thing. There's so much stress, I think, that's associated with both high schools and colleges, especially with the com- the competition of getting into places. The stress does overwhelm you to the, the point where I, I can't do all this well. So I'm going to just essentially cheat. And that's the new form of cheating. And it's really wild. Yeah, that's what I was talking about when I was um, bringing up earlier, like the scarcity mindset, because I think that this industry is so competitive and we're like meant to put each other put against each other. And like if somebody gets a role, you feel like it's a role being taken away from you that you could have had. And I think that's why like this moment with the strike and with the other unions having their contracts also up, it's like a way for us to see it not in a scarcity way, but as a way that if we're we're all stronger together and if we unite in this moment, then, you know, it stands up and we can all stand up to the studios and the networks. And that's important. And that's the only way that this is going to get close to being settled because this is look we have always been behind the wave as writers 
DVDs all those years ago, we missed out on that. And that was a gigantic financial windfall for the studios. Um, writers did not really, I mean, you'll hear some writers who go, no, we, no, we made some nice money. I still, weirdly enough, make more. <laughs> I did two Golden Girls as an actor. And I still receive residuals. And those residuals on those two episodes that I did are actually more than I get for some of the things that I wrote. That's how crazy it is. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Wow. That's insane. That's not okay. Yeah. It's weird. And by the way, can't even tell you how that works because there are other things I did as an actor where I'll still get three cents, six cents. And by the way, my whole goal there is to never take them into the banks, to destroy them so that somebody's numbers will never match. (laughs) Because what should happen with those residuals is they should go into a, anything under a dollar, frankly, should go into a pot that is used for the actor's fund. That, because again, it means nothing to an individual actor. That five cents is ridiculous. But guess what? A thousand five cent residuals sent to a place like the Actors Fund to help actors who are, you know, who are now incapable of working or are older or that makes a difference. Yeah. 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 Let's do that. We should do that. Let's, we should. I mean, we're here for a change. We're here to make a change. So let's do that. Come on. I have zero, I have zero doubt that the two of you are not absolutely set to be the, uh, the purveyors of change. I can see it. I know it. I know it. (laughs) <laughs> I know I'm not alone. So there you go. You're not alone, Nat. We're here. <laughs> oh, by the way, funny enough, to that point, to that point exactly about we're here for you. And I was actually saying more about you guys. I was complimenting you than me. Uh, I wasn't complimenting. I was just basically saying you guys are the forces of change. You guys are the ones who make this, these wonderful differences. I posted something about a week ago. Um, I was standing in line at the at the picket line and I was by myself, which was kind of cool. I was fine. I would just walk and I'd said I said something in my post. I went, yeah, I'm here with no friends. I'm serious, meaning I'm here. I don't have to walk with friends to have a, the, the the ability to be here to make a point. But it kind of came off like, yeah, I'm here with no friends. I'm serious. I have no friends. here, <laughs> And I had people write. Nat, I'll join you next time. Oh. My wife said, honey, you kind of sounded pathetic. I said, oh, shit, I had meant, can I swear? Sorry. Yeah. Um, I kind of meant it as, no, I don't care that I'm not walking with friends. I meant it that way, but it did kind of come off pathetic. So I got to be careful with words I choose. My friend on this project that we produced this um, past weekend, she got a shirt that said, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to make the day. Oh, that's, see, that's perfect. Isn't that really cute? So, I love that. Well, there are so many great signs. There was um, one that said, you really have had to fuck up a lot to have writers want to go outside and walk. And I thought <laughs> that says it all. <laughs> because, you know, as a whole, writers are kind of lazy. They want to mm-hmm. do their work and nobody wants to go outside and walk back and forth on a picket line for hours. Yeah. My favorite that I've seen is ChatGBT doesn't have childhood trauma. That's another <laughs> awesome one. I know. I know. It's great. By the way, the signs, look at There are so many great signs and there will continue to be, and there'll be memes about them and there'll be all sorts of fun stuff that you'll see about because it's going to go on for a while. I know. Yeah. I think we just need to be prepared. I know you already mentioned um, what actors and writers can be doing, but can we just get a, get another, like a repeat Sure. Of what, to advi- what, what you could advise writers, producers, anyone that's kind of just, you know, really stressed out about the situation, anyone that's affected by the situation, what they could be doing in the meantime. I think, and again, I know that a lot of you will say, well, that doesn't really serve me as well as you think it does. But, and I'm very aware of it. So I preface it by saying you have to find ways of, as an actor, of continuing to play with your craft. And by the way, whether that's going to acting classes or shooting something, getting friend a couple of friends together, there's a lot of different ways to create content that then you have in your back pocket for when it's done. Um, I know that, that it, it's nothing comes free, but it's the way to prepare yourself because to just sit around and mope and stress out is not helpful. 
to anybody. As writers, well, it's a little bit easier to write something with if you have a partner. By the way, I always say, all things being equal, find a partner, find somebody who you love working with because you'll become almost more um, as a, of a desirable commodity because two voices for the price of one is something that all things being equal, we used to look for. That said, um, it's a lonely job sometimes when you're in you know, your apartment or your home and you're writing by yourself. Um, so keep writing, prepare for the thing to be done. We have to, I know we have to make livings somehow, but most of us, when we're starting or when we're in that state, most actors and most writers have to have work beyond the writing because that's the only way you can supplement your income. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would suggest you do. It's easy to stress. So you got to somehow fight through it. And as somebody once said to me, every day, find something proactive to do, whether you're an actor or a writer. I don't care whether that's, you know, writing a scene, if you're a writer, of something that you always thought would be a really cool scene to write. That could be a short. That could be something that eventually goes on Funny or Die or whatever the new comedy outlets are. Or it's, you know, it's doing, I don't know what the rules are with documentaries, because uh, I know that Lauren's done some, hers are just obviously so awesome in terms of what they are. I don't even know if you can still Get them out there in the world. I don't know what a, I don't know what the documentary side of the business is all about, but you can still create. You can still do things so that you're not just stressing. And Nat, what are some healthy habits that you feel like have allowed you to get to where you are in your career? And I'm particularly curious about days where you are on set because, you know, some of those days are 12 hour days or more. And I feel like it's really hard for people to still have a life outside of the career. So what do you, what are things that you have to do every day? Well, I have to go back in my head to when I was really working those insane days. And right. there were days that I, you know, our, our son was a baby at, uh, when I first was really successful and not being with him as he grew up, I was always there for the important events. And that's what I was going to say, which is that family, friends, family, especially that's most important to me always, which is having a life beyond your work. Uh, I just think it's really important to have that. And for me, it was some, there were some days I'll never forget where I knew I was going to be working late and I, punched walls knowing I wasn't going to be home to say goodnight to our son. There were other days where I would be with him. I would drop him off like at Sunday school or school. And I'll never forget one sort of a sad story, but it, it, I've, I've overcome it. Um, I was saying goodbye to him because my wife was doing something else. And so I took him to this thing and I left him, the, him there. And his teachers knew I was going to be leaving him because I had to go to work. It was like a weekend. And I cried as I was saying to one of the teachers, I, can't, I have to go. And I'm sure I, I'm sure I freaked her out because it was like, oh my God, this grown man is crying. But that's how it is for me. Um, so the healthy habits are you've got to find ways to continue to give yourself a full life. Even when you're working those ridiculous hours, you just have to, you have to give your staff a break. You have to give yourself a break. Um, and it's kind of hard. It's easier said than done in a lot of ways. Um, there were times when we had um, two shows on the air at the same time, one on ABC and one on CBS. And I'll never forget, I said to my partner, you know, what's great about having a partner, no matter how much they don't like me, they don't like you more. Mm -hmm. And we laugh about it because that was our way of kind of surviving together the crazy even though it sounded a little dysfunctional, even as I say it now, but it was funny. It was, and that's really what we did. You, you just have to, I mean, it's not about, I mean, yeah, you still have to figure out ways to eat healthy. You have to find ways to, to exercise when you can, all those little things that sound so trite are important. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us the funniest, wildest, intriguing, or most inspirational story from your career? I have, I I saw that we were talking about that as a, as a question that I might get asked. And it's one of those where I'll, I'll give you one that to me inspires actors because it's maybe one of the most fun ones that ever happened. I don't like to use the actor's name. We were doing a show uh, called Over the Top. It starred Tim Curry, 
who was wonderful in Rocky Horror Picture Show. He was the original Frankenfutter, I think, in that. And Annie Potts was uh, his ex-wife. And it was a really funny idea. I loved it. I was really, really, really proud of it. We were looking for the role of a chef who worked at this hotel where Annie's character was now living, essentially. The chef was foreign. The chef, we never said where from, but the chef was um, Tim Curry's character's biggest fan. And we couldn't find the chef. We couldn't. We saw actor after actor after actor. And then an actor came in and did the strangest, most unique thing I have still ever seen to this day as a, as having been one and having watched performances and auditions. He started to scream a word within a sentence like, uh, oh, my, and this wonderful accent. Oh, my God, I am your. And he would shout the word biggest fan. And it, sh- it shook shit. It like was, we all looked around and we went, OK, that's kind of hysterical. And then he did it again. And he was so funny. We went, we got to bring this guy back because we got to see. We got to bring him in for a callback because we got to give him the role if, he's, if he does the same thing. The actor was Steve Carell. This is way before Steve was, you know, Steve was way before he was a star. But you could see even then, this guy as an actor just made choices. He took risks and it worked. It worked for us. And so that's one of those stories that inspires other actors because you kind of go, oh, that's why I always say to actors, be memorable. Find something in your performance. So, I mean, look, trust me, there are some crazy stories that as my former partner says we got to save them for the book i say i'll never write a book I just, <laughs> too much work it's but and also i i have to i will protect i will protect some of the, my writers and some of the actors who did things that i'll t- i'll have to tell you guys when we're not on recording on, we're not recording there are just wild stories some are funny some are horror shows but this is part of what this makes this business so different look i always knew one thing i don't want a nine to five job and i don't want to wear a suit i don't want to wear a coat and die anywhere so what you then do is you get into this crazy business and sure there are crazy people out there in the world who are not you know in the entertainment business but trust me, the entertainment business is filled with crazy people in the in the best sense. So there are so many more stories. But that's kind of the one I always think about that's, I think, really a positive one for actors. Yeah. Uh, you discovered Steve Carell. How nice. <laughs> yeah. <been> an agent. <laughs> I, by the way, I think to myself these days, I see so many actors who are so good, who aren't repped. And I'm going, why are they not repped? They're awesome actors and i thought to myself oh my god if i can i just i could i just can't be an agent or a manager i just won't do it because i just i have issues with them as a whole but i would be a i would be a good one because i would although i would my heart would break when my actors who i still believe in you know get rejected for a role i, I would live and die with each role that my actor got or didn't get so but all your um, clients would love you they they yes. must if I'm getting them work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so our DM of the week asks, yes. what is the part about having a career in the entertainment industry that keeps you up at night? <laughs> <laughs> kind of look, I still will wake up, even though I haven't been on a show in a while, for my my uh it's always about being found out as an imposter. Are, are, are they going to find out that I'm really not good? Am I going to finally fail on this script? Are they going to see right through me and they're going to go, why did we think he was good? I think what keeps us up is, especially when we're in television and we're doing the job, the as we call it, there's a train and you are running ahead of the trains try, trying to keep from getting run over. So that's what kept me up at night for sure at that point in my career which is in the midst of my biggest successes. There was a an executive who will remain nameless, who when we got two shows on the air, like I told you, the first thing they said to us at the upfronts, which is this where everybody gathers and they pick up shows and it's a celebration. The first words out of this person's mouth were, don't fuck this up. And that alone says everything you need to know about how stressful this can be. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they meant it as a, as a threat, but that's how you take it when you know you have the responsibility for so many other people's livelihoods in your hands when you are a showrunner. So that's what kept me up at night. And now what keeps me up at night is just, you know, whatever the logistics are that I'm doing with whether it's my shooting a scene or writing a script or, you know, going in for a pitch. Uh, those are the things that, and yet then again, it's what's so exciting about it. And once you embrace the fact that you can, you'll fail plenty of times, it's okay. It's sort of, you know, it sort of washes over you like, yeah, all right, I'm not the only one. And there's a lot of people living the same crazy dream that can sometimes become a nightmare. So yeah. there you go. It's- it's so wild about what, what you said about that, because even in the midst of your success, that reoccurring thought that, oh, am I good enough? Are people going to think I'm an imposter? That is so common with people who are successful and no amounts of success is going to take that thought out of your head, which is a, it's kind of reassuring to us little people <laughs> that, you know, like when we're freaking out about an audition or even in class being like, oh my God, like I'm not good enough. What are these people going to think when I get up on stage and I'm like doing my thing? They're going to think I'm like, you know, I, I shouldn't be here. I don't deserve this spot in class, but everyone thinks that. Yeah. it It's really weirdly true. And it's so silly to say it out loud, but it's true. Every script we wrote for Doogie Howser, and we wrote 26, we were convinced was going to be the last one that we were able, ever going to make good. We still, and again, that's true. And as actors, look, that's why I say to you, you once you embrace the idea that you won't get every role, all you can do is go in prepared and be memorable. And what I mean by that is just do you, because that's all you can ever bring is a version of you Um I will, I will, and this is for Lauren because Lauren knows this. My industry guest who came the day that Lauren's workshop was, my industry guest sent me a note afterwards. And this is an industry guest. I, I won't name him, but Lauren knows who I'm talking about. And he's a lovely man. I love him to death and he's incredibly talented. He said, she's awesome. She's my favorite. That made a, a dent in, in her life To because I'm going to tell her that. Why would I not tell her that? That's a wonderful thing to hear. Um, and that's what I do. That's what we have to do. And, you know, you have to get that positive reinforcement in whatever way that comes. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Wow, Lauren, look at you. Good yeah. job. <laughs> and what I've learned, by the way, about Lauren, and now with Asha, the same thing. Asha, I'm sorry, Asha. I love that name. I love the fact that there's two A's. You were always going to be first. If we, if we went by, last, by first names, you were always going to be first in line. Always. Always, always, honey. <laughs> which is kind but, of the worst also, depending on what it is. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, I used to get butt dialed all the time, which is yeah. really annoying. <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. That's hysterical. But but the truth is what Lauren has done and what you guys have done, even with this wonderful podcast is, by the way, for those of you listening, I already said this to them before we went on the air or whatever it's called, before we went on the, this what a great name. What a great name for a, just a great name. It's catchy. It's interesting. It's, and this is what you do. You keep creating. It's what I love about Lauren is that she's a, she's just passionate about what she does. Um, and now I have a new friend who I have yeah, you do. exactly the same way, who is going to follow me and I'm going to follow her on Instagram. And I by the way, I follow you on Instagram. Yes, wow. you do. I, I do? think you do. Yeah, okay. sure you do. Okay. I'll look it up. Okay. Well, well when we're done, we'll look it tell up. Tell everybody where they can find you, how they can support you. Um, okay. You can always, you, do you, can you, you I, mean, I will happily share my email. I just do. And my email address is Nat, N-A-T, Nat is Nat King Cole with an N, then the letter M, because my middle name is Mark, and then Bernstein, B-E-R-N, don't forget that N, everybody does. S-T-E-I-N at Gmail. So it's Nat M Bernstein at Gmail. Or you can follow, don't find me on Facebook because that's for old people. We all know that now. Uh, but you can find me on Instagram at Nat Burn, N-A-T-B-E-R-N 856. And I love to, like I said, I embrace social media as something that not only is for business 
and pleasure and our dogs in every picture or our son <laughs> as my wife refuses but um and of course my politics which hey if you don't agree with them too bad i'm i feel very strongly that we are it's important to state where you are in this world but i love doing it because i think it's a great way to just to kind of keep current and keep out there and i just get such i just love it i and it's fun so now you can see why we bonded Osh between politics and dogs. Love it. You know what? We are. I don't have any dogs, but I do love politics. He likes my dog. You can hear him. Oh yeah, yeah. We, we love her. You almost, you almost heard my, my when my wife walked in the door. I thought, oh god, you're going to hear because I said to her she was not home, so he was like lying down behind me, and then she comes in the door, and all all bets are off. He's <laughs> barking, and yeah, it's great. Get a dog, Osh. You'll love a dog. Yes, I think I will sometime in the future. Although, well, yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot of words. Thanks for being here, Nat. We really, really appreciate you educating all of our listeners about what's going on right now. It is such pleasure. I hope I didn't, like I said, I hope I didn't blather on too much, but I love doing it. I love my job in my life now is to pay it forward in whatever way that is. So I, I'm so grateful that you asked and I had a lot of fun. So thank you. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. As always, please like, rate, review, subscribe, DM us your questions because we actually really love um, reading your DM of the week questions. They're so, there's just so great and very insightful questions that we're getting, very curious questions. Okay, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. Until next time. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. DMs, DMs, we don't need them. We just leave them. Please. Yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.